He really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where each episode i queen out on all of the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutia that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name is barbara bell gettys and we've got sort of a fun mixed bag of an episode today i've got some <clears throat> some highlights i've got one very important correction and some little nuanced recommendations for you while we are navel deep in a, a strange summer that may find you mostly indoors looking for things to watch and do. So first things first, and I've been sweating about this since I posted the episode and realized my mistake and then um, quickly stopped sweating when I realized I was probably the only person who knew this or cared about this. But let me go on the record to say that in the Blanche Devereaux episode, I wrote I routinely and repeatedly announced that Brenda Vaccaro had won an Emmy for her guest appearance on uh, the season six episode of Ebb Tide's Revenge. She did not win the Emmy. She was nominated for an Emmy. And, you know, I had that moment where I was like, ooh, I really made a point of that. And I was really wrong. I wonder if I'll hear. And then I just stopped. I just stopped wondering if I would hear from anybody about that, because that is... That is the essence of an obscure reference, and that's what I'm all about here. And so there's a lot of safety in that, and that most people will not be able to clock if I was wrong about Brenda Vaccaro's early 90s Emmy nominations and wins. So if you are one of the two or three people out there who knew I was wrong and bit your tongue and didn't tell me, I'm here to say I know I was wrong. Uh, I don't think it takes away from her performance or from the iconic line reading of, what he was, Sophia, was a good man. But in my heart, she won. I mean, she's a nuancey. I think she's a nuancey nominee as well. I don't know if she's actually won a nuancey. And if you're like, what the fuck is a nuancey? A nuance, nu- the nuances, uh, we've had two of them so far. And early next year, we'll have our third one. And it's, it's, it's kind of my favorite episode of In the Details every year because it's kind of the, it's the look back of all of the nuances that I've covered in the year past. And I kind of pick out which are my favorites, which were the best of the best. And it's hard because, you know, how do you, how do you pick a favorite child? But some stand out more than others. And that's kind of, you know, I was thinking about that with this episode today because there's a bunch of different things where I'm, I'm going to cover today versus, you know, just kind of focusing on one thing. And partially, I think it's because then I can just put more things, more micro moments, more acting choices into the for consideration pool for the nuances. Now, who who votes on the nuances? This is all internal. This is just me. I make the rules. I can break the rules. I can extend the rules. Um, It's a one man band over here and I can shake that tambourine anytime I want. But uh, that is kind of at the heart, I think, of what this episode is, is a bunch of nuances that I've kind of stumbled on or remembered or just want you to know about. So let's get into it. First of all, I had such a hoot and holler doing the past two episodes on the Golden Girls, the episode on Rose on her last birthday in St. Olaf, and of course, the Blanche Devereaux episode. I'll certainly do more Golden Girls episodes, but I realized 
after I had finished the Blanche episode that there were just a couple of omissions that I was like, ugh, I really should have. These, these deserve to mention. So uh, one of them already was mentioned. In the Rose episode, I talked about this great scene about buying shoes with Blanche uh, getting all hot and bothered, which, of course, you know, we'll play right here in case you forgot. Sometimes you get yourself a really good-looking salesman and you try to pretend you don't notice his hands caressing your calf as he tries to keep his mind on shoes, but all the time he's thinking, dare I peek? <laughs> dare I look more? <laughs> dare I look where no eyes have looked before? <laughs> Then as he kneels there before you, little beads of perspiration breaking out on his forehead, his breath coming shorter and quicker, he ever so gently slips the supple leather on your quivering foot. And you achieve a perfect fit. Come on, old woman, we need shoes now. But I think under the theme of nuances that make me love Blanche Devereaux, I want to make sure that I'm highlighting that as well because it's just such a perfect moment. And she does that thing that where she kind of pushes her hair up and pushes it back when she says, you're quivering foot. And that's just genius. But the other moment that I realized I wanted to mention briefly was from the season five episode, Mary Had a Little Lamb, where Blanche has the prison pen pal Merrill. And then he gets out of prison and he comes to the house to meet her. And then she comes home. Dorothy and Rose and Sophia have already figured out who this is and are trying to cover for her. And so they're putting on this act of like, oh, Blanche isn't here. You wouldn't like Blanche. And I love this. Mo I, there's two things I love about this. One, the genius physical comedy of Blanche coming in and saying, oh, who's your friend, Dorothy? And oh, hi, Meryl. And then she sits down on the couch and then she realizes in that split second who Meryl is. And the way that she flies off of the couch and back to Rosa's side is just, I mean, I think I'd mentioned in the Blanche episode that there's sort of a, a startled chicken quality about her. There's sort of this uh, ruffled feathers quality to Blanche sometimes. And this is a perfect example of that. But then there's this great moment where they're trying to convince Meryl that he would not like Blanche. And Rose is, she's doing, <laughs> she's doing the right thing. She's doing the right thing. But I, I love here one of those brief moments where Rose is right and then Blanche is kind of the dumb one. It's, it's so genius, both in their interactions and the way that the little notes that Betty White is playing. But then, of course, Blanche insisting that she is gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous is, I, I think, is a great example of why Blanche is not just you know, the the original Samantha Jones, because she's, um, I think as I said in the Blanche episode, what I like about her is that she's, her confidence is often wrong, and that makes her more relatable and kind of makes that confidence more enjoyable. So here is that moment as well. Well, Dorothy, you didn't tell me you were expecting company. <laughs> this is Meryl. Oh, well, how are you, Meryl? Actually, he's more a friend of Blanche's. Uh, we were just explaining to Merrill that uh, there's no telling when Blanche will be back. 
Oh, Lord, no. Oh, there's no use waiting around. You wouldn't like Blanche anyway. She's not your type. That's right, she isn't. She's very cold. Frigid. Hardly likes men at all. And she's ugly, isn't she? <laughs> ugly is a pretty strong word, Rose. And wrinkled, isn't she? She is not wrinkled. And fat. Stop that! <laughs> you just stop that right now. She is none of those things, Rose Nyland. She is gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. All right, all right. Sounds good. Tell Blanche I'll be back. All right, well, now that we've covered that, I feel a lot better. I want to move on to a little update. You may be familiar with my on my Bobby Baby 35th birthday episode about the original cast recording of Company, which is you know my only episode on musical theater. And um, I'm not a big musical theater person if you haven't heard that episode, but I found Company to just be uh, really an exception to the rule, especially the original cast recording from 1970. But then I finally saw, I watched the 2007 revival because it's on YouTube. It was really hard to track down, but some kind soul figured it out. And it was uh, it was it was really good. I mean, obviously, I have not seen the original production, but I I think just kind of the the tone is obviously a little bit different. The approach seems to be obviously quite different. But there were a couple moments that really stood out to me when I did the company episode. There were certainly examples of performances or moments that I preferred or I really equally enjoyed from from the two thousand seven revival. But someone who I did not realize was such a standout in the revival was Elizabeth Stanley as April. And April, of course, like she's most well known for um, Barcelona, which is a fun song. Not fun. It's not a fun song. It seems funny at first. And then the more you think about it, it's like really, really sad. But I think what I really appreciated about her and, and both in that moment and other points in the show was how much she was actually a contending best supporting actress for Joanne, you know, slash the Elaine Stritch role slash who gets to sing ladies who lunch, um, which to me feels quintessential best supporting actress, quintessential kind of like, you know, micro moments, acting choices, magic and the minutia. But Elizabeth Stanley's April is so funny and so nuanced. And I think what stood out to me the most was um, in the song, you could drive a person crazy, which is really clever uh, lyrics. I mean, it's one of those things where if I heard it and I wasn't paying attention to the lyrics, I'd be like, ugh, this is too cutesy. But then when you really listen to it, it's like, oh God, this is so fucking dark. But she, the, the, the thing with this revival, and you may be fully aware of this, is that all of the actors are playing instruments as well. And so the three women are playing saxophones and there's these little kind of puffs on the on the saxophone not not the actual term i'm not a musical person i'm calling them puffs but these little honks that they do that are just these little punctuation points and she does the third one and it's so purposefully a little bit off you know like it it has this intentional quirk this intentional honk quality that is just so funny it's so smart and so i i'll i'll play that here just so you know what i'm talking about
If for some reason you have not seen the revival or you want to see it again, I will put the link to it in the description on YouTube. I'm assuming it's still there. It's been there for a while, so no one's found it yet. So fingers and toes crossed. Now, this is absolutely uh, a purposeful mention so that I can potentially include her in the consideration pool for the nuances next year. But I just need to briefly revisit. You know it's coming. Actually, you don't know it's coming. I know it's coming. But once you hear it, you won't be surprised if you've heard other episodes of this podcast. That is, of course, Joe Beth Williams in Poltergeist. So Nick and I did an episode on the, the BSAs of Poltergeist on Best Supporting Podcast which I highly recommend. It was a lot of fun. We got to talk about Beatrice Strait. We got to talk about Zelda Rubenstein. Uh, we got to talk about Craig T. Nelson's dad bod. I mean, I, I don't know what you're waiting for. But, um, and of course, I've done a Poltergeist episode. I think it was one of my early episodes, like episode like six or four or something single digit, but Poltergeist and the Power of Moms. And I just need to mention again, because that episode was certainly a celebration of Joe Beth Williams as well as Jerry Goldsmith and that score. Oh, that fucking score. Just so good. But I – so revisiting it though, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know if maybe I'm just a little, a little off kilter in these 2020 times. I don't think so. But God, Poltergeist made me so emotional the last – when I watched it for that episode. And it really does come down to Joe Beth Williams. I – I don't use this term lately. She is it is a it is it is a powerhouse of a performance. And I uh I just need that to be said. I just I need that to be in the air today, tonight, etc. Uh that Joe Beth Williams is really so fucking good in poltergeist and just like, broke my heart so many times. I, I think that movie is every time I watch it, I just really appreciate I appreciate just how much it's about this family in crisis and this family navigating this really, really specific and unique version of grief because their daughter isn't dead, but their daughter isn't here anymore. And I think that's really fascinating. And if you, you may not know this, you may have empirically put this evidence together, but I love grief. I'm obsessed with the concept of grief. I think it is a fascinating experience. I, I mean, it's not fun. You know, I feel like my first real grieving experience was when I was 15 and we had to put the family dog to sleep. And now we have about a, I have about a 30 second window where I can talk about this before I get emotional 20 years later still. But that was really like, boy, did that break me. And that was not fun. And I never want to revisit that experience. And I'm keeping my eye on the clock because we might be at like 30 seconds soon. But the the grief experience that really made it fascinating for me was in... 2009, so I was in my mid-20s, and my grandfather had passed away, and not that I'm, you know, uh, I'm happy about that either, but it was, um, it's as the Irish would say, it was a good death. You know, it wasn't, you know, ideal, ideal in all, you know, circumstances, but, you know, he was surrounded by family when he went, he was peaceful, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, I think, a, a really profound experience because I had not, I remember, like, it was so different from Mickey, the dog. Uh, now that I've said her name, we've got five seconds left where I can keep talking about her before I get emotional. But uh, with that, I kind of knew, we knew it was coming. Um, or we kind of prepared for it. We planned for it. We scheduled it. You know what I mean? And we can't talk about her anymore. But with my grandfather, it was so much more of that classic, like, you know, the the, the rug getting pulled out from under you and all of a sudden, like, the logic of reality just stopped making sense. And... 
I remember that day feeling like I could see the bookends of life, you know, like I could see how this was a story that could end. And I also remember just the insane emotional experience responding to that. And I, I distinctly remember Googling like what's normal for grief, like what experience, like what should I be expecting? Like some of these feelings I'm having don't feel like the grief I've seen in movies, you know, um, like I am, I am voraciously hungry. I remember when we left the hospital, we, we picked up like donuts and bagels and we went back to my, my brother and sister-in-law's place and I was just a bagel vacuum. I just, the, and, and a donut vacuum. I had an attachment for donuts. <laughs> and I just couldn't, and I like insatiably hungry. And there were other things that I just, I, I, I found myself like sort of rebounding from grief to just like indulgence and, and, and wanting to understand like what this was. And, you know, the, the, the only explanation was, you know, if it feels crazy, you're doing it right. Like if it if it feels like it's just kind of um, this sort of unmitigated, confusing emotional experience, then, yeah, then you're probably grieving. And I think that's the expansiveness of that. You know, the fact that that could be so many different things that you could react in so many different ways. I think that's really kind of exciting to watch in movies. You know, it's exciting. I think as in terms of acting choices and scenes, it's um, it's really exhilarating to see that explored. And so I think that's really what laid the foundation. And and lo and behold, the uh, the rest of the highly nuances that I want to talk about in this episode are grief related. So that's just sort of a context. Um, I also want to say this. Joe Beth Williams walked so that Tony Collette and Hereditary could run. And that takes nothing away from Tony Collette, but just on the on the topic of grief and also mothers, I'm like obsessed with uh, mothers grieving is is kind of a fascinating topic to me as well. Um, I I don't know. I feel like I've uh, you could explore that topic all day. You know, mothers are complicated and grief is complicated. So you layer that on, and it's just so complicated. And so uh, I feel like I like to think of those as kind of. Um, Cousins, Joe Beth Williams and Poltergeist, and Tony Collette and Hereditary. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's worth a back to back, you know. Um, and then maybe find something a little more uplifting. Maybe watch Poltergeist second. Hereditary is a little bit of a uh, a, a down note to end things on. Um, so on that topic, let's get to it. So on the topic of grieving mothers, I I'm not saying that this is like a great movie overall, but it's got a couple of great moments. But there's a movie from 2000 the year 2000 from 2000 you have to say the year 2000 um called a map of the world which i believe was based on a book i think it was an oprah book club book i think it was jane hamilton and um it stars julianne moore and sigourney weaver and so it's all about that they're two friends and they you know they both have families and you know kids and all that and then one day uh sigourney weaver is watching both of their kids and one of julianne moore's daughters drowns in their lake and uh it obviously just kind of sets off this chain reaction of things especially you know Sigourney Weaver's character is the nurse at the school and so she's I think there's the the irony of that that trusted you know caregiver figure being seen as someone who is not trustworthy as someone who is not responsible and kind of how that unravels her and how they obviously both unravel uh there's a couple moments in this movie it's on YouTube I'll put the link in the comments but there's a couple moments that I think are a great demonstration of what grief does. And 
I think the bonus is that we get to see it performed by Sigourney Weaver and Julianne Moore. So there's two moments worth seeing. I'm going to play them for you. I don't think they're spoilers because so much of these moments are visual as well, especially the Sigourney Weaver scene. But let's start with Julianne Moore. So there's a scene where uh, Sigourney Weaver's character, I think her name is Alice, she goes out into the woods and she hears uh, Julianne Moore's character crying in the woods and they have this confrontation and Julianne Moore has this incredible talking through tears monologue that I think is, it's a great, it's a great performance of ugly crying, which I think Julianne Moore is so good at. Like, I think she is so not vain about crying. She kind of has that bow tie mouth that happens, but this is great. I, I particularly love the line, like, uh, it's amazing how much a person can cry. I, I just like, I I think that that, I think I must have heard that at some kind of younger cataloging years. Like the year 2000, I was like, what was I, 14, 15? I was 15. And so prime time to hear a line like that and just be like, ugh, women acting. Ugh, I know what I want to be when I grow up. So here, let's just play this monologue. I don't think you need too much. You, you have enough context, but it's a, there's a great kind of emotional arc here. And the thing that to remember listening to this is that at one point they were best friends. And so there's this sense of confiding in one another, but then she really can't because, you know, in some ways she's also Sigourney Weaver's character is also the cause of her pain. And so um, it's, it's just, yeah, it's an amazing little monologue. So here is that moment. I didn't. Don't. There's nothing to say. Terrible thing. It's hard for me to see you right now. I know. No, you don't know. <laughs> oh, it's amazing how much a person can cry. You know, I, I decided to write down all the things I, I could remember better. I was terrified there wasn't much, but I started right at conception and God, it, it all came back. Every doctor's visit, hearing her heart beat on the stethoscope thing, the birth, her first to it. Everyone says, you know, get on with your life, keep busy, plant a garden, take a vacation. My sister thinks I should get a puppy. Dan still gets up at four o'clock every morning, work, 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 like nothing's happened. And Audrey, you know, she's doing the best of all of us. She's running around shouting, my sister's in heaven, my sister's in heaven. Me, you know, I eat, I shower. I'm afraid to leave because I keep thinking, maybe Lizzie will come back and we won't be home. Where are you going? Yeah, we thought Cape Cod, but now we're thinking the Grand Canyon. I don't want to go. Teresa. I know you're sorry, Alice. I'm even sorry you're sorry. But that doesn't do me any good right now. Don't ever tell Dan I smoked, okay? But then, I mean... If you wanted more, it, it, not long after that into the movie, there's a scene where Sigourney Weaver's at the school and she's just 
really unraveling and I think she's being confronted by these two detectives and they're they're just trying to you know kind of do that that thing where they're trying to talk her off the ledge and say oh we just want to ask you a couple questions but um you know could we just ask you a couple questions like just trying to kind of reel her in as she's unraveling in front of them it's it's such a great scene I think from an acting choices standpoint like I think what a what a fun moment fun is a weird word but in terms of the the practice of acting what a fun moment for an actor to get to really play and to get to really like explore you know the body language of this moment and and all of the kind of little you know micro shifts and emotions so it's so worth seeing it's so worth seeing what Sigourney Weaver does here and the way she there's moments where she kind of just like falls against the wall and then just kind of like starts laughing and um it's just this wackadoo body language I'm Detective Grogan from the investigation unit in Racine. I'd like to talk to you for a minute if you don't mind. Hey, just for a minute. This is Officer Melby. Welby? in Marcus Welby? <laughs> We're trying to get some information about Robbie McKessie. Oh. Not pleasant memories, I take it. I think you could say. You have a relationship with Robbie? Oh. <laughs> What's funny? Kids are usually afraid of the school nurse. Afraid? I'm a tall person who carries a needle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to go. Oh. Just a few questions, please, Mrs. Goodwin. The more we know about Robbie, the better we can assist him. Uh, what sort of trouble is he in now? We're not able to comment, I'm afraid. We wondered if you remember any strange behavioral patterns. (laughs) Oh, well, his crazy mother always brings him to school sick. What kind of sickness did he have? Oh, God, I mean, you know, sore throats, ear infections, you know, the common cold, you know, you name it. I, I have to go. Are you okay? Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not well. I'm sorry to keep you standing. Why don't we sit? This really won't take much longer. You see, I'm sick, and I really can't. We just have a few more things to ask. <laughs> you want to know the truth? I am trying to have a complete nervous breakdown and no one will let me do it in peace. (laughs) What's the matter? Mrs. Goodwin? Mrs. Goodwin? I hurt everybody. You can really hear this sort of aria that she's playing, similar to Julianne Moore. These are both really examples of acting arias. Again, I don't think the whole movie really works, but I think um, as a sum of its parts, these are some great parts. Now, while we're on the topic of grief, um, whenever I think about grief or I talk about grief, um, I always go back to this monologue from the David Lindsay Bear play slash movie Rabbit Hole. It, it To me, it has always summed up what grief is like, and it is always kind of what I remind myself about grief. And it's it's an amazing moment in the play, but then the added bonus is that in the movie version, it's performed by Diane Wiest. So, and Rabbit Hole is really just certainly an exploration of grief. It's about 
uh, these two parents whose son was killed. He was hit by a car chasing after his dog. And it's just them really processing the the grief of that and, and how to move on and how to forgive. And Diane Weist plays the grandmother and she had her son had died of a drug overdose. And so she kind of repeatedly in the movie brings him up as her point of reference of grief and losing a son and, you know, has that, you know, so she has, you know, the experience of knowing what it feels like. And so I will play that here because it's, it's just an amazing moment um, with, in case you don't know, the movie also stars Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart as the parents. And they're really, it's, it's great. It's kind of a bummer of a movie, but Diane Weist is fabulous in it. So here is uh, the infamous grief monologue. I don't think it does. Not for me, it hasn't. That's going on 11 years. It changes, though. How? I don't know. The weight of it, I guess. At some point, it becomes bearable. It turns into something that you can crawl out from under and... You know, carry around like a brick in your pocket. And you, you, you even forget it for a while, but then you reach in for whatever reason and there it is. All oh, right, that. It could be awful. But not all the time. It's kind of... Not that you like it exactly, but it's what you've got instead of your son. So you carry it around. And uh, it doesn't go away. Which is... But the other moment I wanted to highlight of Diane Weist in here is her talking about this neighbor that used to come over all the time and her frustrations of like, you know, trying to deal with this person who's, quote unquote, trying to share her grief, but isn't really seeming to take any of it away. What I love about this is how as how Long Island it is. Like I'm from New Jersey. And so there's there's a fluency in like women who talk like this and. Um, I, I love that. I love that Diane Weist has that very regional quality to her. And it's funny. And I like how they start laughing about it. And I think that's a really interesting part of grief as well is the shit you laugh about is the stuff that suddenly becomes incredibly funny because, you know, your emotions are just totally, you know, fucked up. So I, I want to highlight this moment as well. She finds, you know, I like to call the curve in the word. Like she finds such interesting ways to deliver lines that lift it so far up off the page that it feels like someone who's just talking. Although it can be worse the other way. You know, I remember when Arthur died. You can say his name. Can I? Yes. You know, I don't know your rules. I don't want to get scolded again. You can talk about Arthur. I just don't like the comparisons. Okay. So how's it worse? You remember Maureen Bailey? 
Yeah. Well, I couldn't get rid of her after your brother passed away. She was always at the house. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, well, you know, I never had a moment to myself. <laughs> so finally, in the middle of coffee one afternoon, I said, Maureen, why are you always here? And what'd she say? She said, I want to be there, Nat. I want to share in your grief. And I said, well, it's not working. You plant your fat ass in that chair every freaking day. You did not say that. I did. Mom! I did say that. You said fat ass? And she sucks up all my coffee. And I don't see you leaving with any of this alleged grief you're sharing. In fact, the only thing you do take out of here are my cinnamon buns. So I never saw her again, obviously. Oh, my God, I can't believe you. <laughs> I feel guilty now. You do not. I do. <laughs> you're right, I do. I don't miss it at all. <laughs> well, let's let's end things on a high note. So a nuance that I I remembered from it was an episode of RuPaul and Michelle's podcast, What's the Tea, where they interviewed Robin, who was a guest on season twelve. And I know I feel like as of you know early July as we're talking about this, you know, RuPaul has has disappeared off social media and Michelle is currently taking a break and the podcast hasn't they haven't had a new episode since like March, uh, so it's an, an interesting time in the world of RuPaul. And of course, we they talk about that plenty on All Right, Mary. So I'm not really going to get into it here. I don't. I don't really know if I have an opinion. Um, my opinion would be if RuPaul, if nearly sixty year old RuPaul, who's done it all, seen it all, and is probably over most of it all, wants to get off of Twitter. God bless him. Twitter is a fucking bummer. I need to get off Twitter, but I'm not gonna. But I get why he did. Anyway, um, I know there's the fracking and all of that. Like, we're not here to talk about RuPaul. We're just not. Um, it's all right, Mary, for you. So, uh, but one of the things they talked about with Robin, of course, Robin is Swedish, and, and so they were talking about ABBA, who, of course, are Swedish as well. And she was talking about the song Chikadita, and especially the ending, which is just this, like, really intense, like, piano moment. And and she was was talking about just how, like, how much she loves that moment and how just sort of evocative and emotional it is. And I had to go back and I was like, yes, I fucking love that part of the song. And it never goes on long enough. It's just too short. And so I thought there must be other people who feel the same way. And lo and behold, there are, because there are, there are videos, you know, which are just audio clips on YouTube extending that ending. And so I feel like there's something about it is, it is a genius little piece of music they say what you want about abba but like god they could put a song together well and so as a sort of final note um before we wrap things up let's listen to just this little extended ending of chickadita um and just you know bask in it and and pull ourselves out of this grief <laughs> that we just talked about for a little while Honestly, I, I, that could go on all day for me. Um, so I hope that lightened things up before I send you on your way. This is just a little fun 
mixed bag of nuances that were mostly not fun and grief related. <laughs> but that's what I find is fun. That's what I think is interesting. So um, what what nuances are you queening out about right now? What explorations of grief do you want to hear more of or do you love and want me to know about? Please, if ever there was someone who wants to know what displays of grief you love the most, it is me. I think I've made that point abundantly clear. So if you want to share with me that or really anything else, you're totally welcome to reach out. Uh, just drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com or you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Colin Drucker or even on Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore and uh, we can chat. Maybe I'll feature that on another episode. So uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, I don't know what I've got planned next, but I know that I've got so much more to talk about. So uh, I'll be back real soon. Um, so yeah, that's all I've got for you. I, uh, this was fun. And, uh, I thank you for joining me for this little celebration of acting choices, micro moments, magic in the minutia, and grief. <laughs> I'm in the details. I'll talk to you later. Bye. I'm staying, I'm staying.